You're listening to Episode 60 of Sass Mouth Dames Podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. If you give me an opening, I will drop Sadie McKee from 1934 in your lap like a golden retriever does with a slobber-drenched tennis ball. I have chewed on this picture so often, and I never tire of it. It places the crown jewel in Joan Crawford's pre-code credits. In fact, I'd argue Sadie McKee is Joan's best film from the 1930s. The romantic angle with men doesn't have half as much emotional potency as the dynamic between women. And the film gives viewers a roundtable on sass-mouth economics. Sadie McKee delivers a great story, outstanding performances, and some glamorous designs by Adrian. It also runs on a fail-safe formula. The formula isn't Shop Girl Makes Good, Rags to Riches, or a Cinderella story. Sadie McKee borrows something much more indelible. In woman's pictures, there's a cornerstone formula where women absorb the slings and arrows from men, but persist, and despite the low opinion of men, they triumph. Garbo used it in A Woman of Affairs, and also in Susan Lennox, Her Fall and Rise. Carol Lombard used it for Virtue and Swing High, Swing Low. Barbara Stanwyck in Babyface and The Purchase Price. Sylvia Sidney used it for Pickup and You and Me. Betty Davis in Marked Woman. Ginger Rogers in Primrose Path. I could go on. When odds are stacked against a dame, and she finds her way thanks to another dame, and carries on in style so good it makes your eyes water, you'll find me holding a candle. Directed by Clarence Brown, the picture was adapted by John Meehan from Vina Del Mar's story Pretty Sadie McKee, a Liberty magazine serial, during the summer of 1933. Joan Crawford hits all the marks. She plays Sadie McKee, who sells hats in a shop. Sometimes she helps serve dinner in the house where her mother has worked as a cook for decades. One night, while she's in uniform among the rich, she interrupts Michael, the rich son, played by Franco Tone, as he tears apart the character of her boyfriend, Tommy, who's played by Jean Raymond. She then runs off to New York with Tommy in tow. They meet a nightclub hostess named Opal played by Jean Dixon, who gets them a room in the boarding house where she lives. That night, Sadie gives up her virginity, since she plans on marrying Tommy the next day. The morning after, left alone for ten minutes, Tommy meets a vaudeville singer named Dolly Merrick, played by Esther Ralston. Dolly hires him as her new singer, and they run off together. Sadie, left alone without money or a job, prepares to leg it out of the boarding house, but Opal catches her sneaking out and takes her at once to the nightclub where she works. Joan joins the dancers on the floor show. One night in the club, she meets Michael again and his client, a millionaire named Jack Brennan, who's played by Edward Arnold. 
Jack Brennan later asks her to marry him, despite Michael's warnings that she's just a chiseler out for his money. Jack Brennan is a chronic alcoholic, so he's unable to share her bed or something. Sadie has everything but love. Then she learns that Mr. Brennan is soon for the grave unless she can manage to wean him from the bottle. Sadie McKee also provides lessons in sassmouth economics. In the cinema, women found another way to fortify themselves with scenes which depicted creative enterprise. Many practical tips were available from women on screen who figured out how to get what they wanted. For example, in Gold Diggers of 1933, Aileen McMahon demonstrates a little ruse to play on rich men who bust in on hardworking showgirls. The men consider showgirls cheap and vulgar. Aileen rings down to a hat shop and has two little divine models in black delivered COD, for which the men with deep pockets are obliged to purchase out of protocol for chivalry. Warren William asks, do all hats cost $75? A tad peeved about being taken to the cleaners. In Babyface, Barbara Stanwyck's character takes the advice of an old cobbler stuck on Nietzsche, who tells her to use men to get the things she wants. Stanwyck's character Lily Powers lets you know the cost of a train fare for two women from Erie, Pennsylvania to New York City, or the price of a job in a bank, or a penthouse flat financed by a fuzzy-wuzzy who puts a few pennies in your bank account. In the original Imitation of Life, Claudette Colbert learns that a woman who asks for rent, furniture, appliances, paper and paint on the cuff can get all of those things if she presses the sass-mouth logic of buy now, pay later. When she's asked how she managed it, she replies honestly, all I had was talk. In Hold Your Man, Jean Harlow stuffs her purse in the powder room bin so she can cry that she needs rent money from her date. Joan Blondell's Blondie Johnson pulls a scam with a hard luck tale about being late for work and not having cab fare to the tune of $20 a sucker. Or when she later threatens scandal to occupy a train cabin in Dames when all she has in the world is a coat and a pair of step-ins. Creative Enterprise necessitates withdrawing cash from a man's wallet by any means necessary. In Sadie McKee, Joan Crawford has a mentor in Sassmouth economics. Who needs an old Nietzsche-addled cobbler when you have Gene Dixon? We don't talk enough about Gene Dixon. With a leopard print coat and gimlet eye, she plays Opal, the hard-boiled nightclub hostess. Opal dispenses survival tips that help Sadie land on her feet after she's jilted. Opal is the only person in the film who asks nothing from Sadie, except for her to have sense enough to remain solvent and independent. The first lesson in Sassmouth economics is to find sorority. Other women will help you make it through the rat race. The second lesson is to get a job so you can eat and pay rent. When they return from the nightclub by subway, Opal continues her tutorial. Joan Crawford tells her that she's sick of men. Opal chides her by replying, oh, you're crazy. They've got what we want, all of it. And every gal has her price. Yours ought to be high. It sounds mercenary, but Opal's point is that Sadie must recognize her own worth. 
Later, one night in the club, the owner tells Sadie that a rich patron requests her at a table. And the owner then promises Sadie 10% on the liquor sales. When the other showgirls taunt Sadie, Opal as hostess snaps, shut up you dames, he's a rich millionaire. Proud that her new charge has snagged a millionaire in less than two weeks on the job, Opal reassures Sadie that she should see it through. Later, after Sadie accepts Brennan's marriage proposal, she takes Opal shopping with Brennan to foot the bill. She pays it forward Sassmouth style. Opal continues to mentor Sadie in smart economics. She replaces a modest sparkler Sadie chooses for a square-cut gem that looks as large as a sugar cube. Meanwhile, Opal doesn't miss an opportunity to feather her own nest. It's a shame she has so shabby a bridesmaid, she quips for Brennan's benefit. The scene cuts to Opal in a new wool coat with mink sleeves, embellished with orchids and a smashing hat. Then Opal pulls the, oh, I forgot I was wearing this large diamond cuff bracelet as they're leaving the shop, which Brennan adds to the shopping list. One little diamond bracelet isn't going to put a dent in a millionaire's pockets. In the next scene, Opal turns up at the mansion. She asks the butler, played by Leo G. Carroll, in his first film role, if Mrs. Brennan is in. The butler replies, are you the young lady she was expecting? Watch closely for Jean Dixon's pause. She stares at him. Jean Dixon lets Leo Carroll's question hang in the air, like marbled beef left to ripen in a meat locker. You can see her turn it over in her mind before she responds. Is he taking the piss, having a go, giving her the high hat? Opal finally responds with a frosty challenge. Well, she's expecting me. Jean Dixon's reaction is masterclass sassmouth. Opal comes in and surveys Sadie's new domain as wife and puts it on the level. Well, a whole lot of us do a whole lot more for a whole lot less. When Sadie grouses about sleeping alone, Opal deadpans, I'll take it. Opal imparts evergreen wisdom in general. She has all the best lines in the picture. When she says, all guys that sing in bathrooms should be shot in cold blood, who would argue? And when she greets Sadie after her confrontation with Dolly Merrick, she asks the rhetorical, did you tell that gal her right name? Clarence Brown and cinematographer Oliver Marsh create gritty texture from the grand scale of New York City to create very intimate and small places. Characters experience this intimacy in anonymous spaces such as a grubby cafe, the subway, the automat, or in the nightclub. Often the scenes depend on visual details that do the talking rather than relying on pages and pages of dialogue. Many of the most striking scenes in Sadie McKee are short and less than two minutes long. When Sadie and Tommy first arrive in the city, they stand at the window of a hash house, watching the line cook flip hotcakes. Their heads bob up and down in unison, watching the pancakes tossed in the air when they decide to try their luck. Among the one-arm joints in film, this one is grim, nearly akin to a soup kitchen. 
There's a dignity about a cafe where patrons eat standing at a counter. People are in a hurry after all. But in this little cafeteria, patrons take their trays from the hot buffet to eat from narrow wooden chairs with a shelf built in on the side, as though they were desks looted from a nearby lecture hall. Organized in single file, crammed in tight, there's no effort to encourage a convivial atmosphere with these little chairs. It's get it in you and then get out. The absence of proper tables or counters for a chair with a desk built in says so much about lonely diners with no comfort. As they queue for a 30-cent special of corned beef hash and a poached egg, Sadie economizes by passing on a cup of coffee that costs five cents. She's using the economy of martyred wives instead of sass-mouthed dames. Tommy orders coffee, though. Of course he does. He's not interested in saving for a rainy day or doing without to make savings last longer. We can tell that he doesn't have much of a future. They sit next to Jean Dixon's Opal, and he asks if she can help them find a place to stay. Opal tells them about the place where she lives, Mrs. Craney's boarding house. Tommy, without tact as usual, says, well, if it's good enough for you. Opal snaps at his insensitivity. It ain't good enough. Not near. Don't ever tell a sass-mouthed dame what she has is good enough. It's red rag to the bull. As I said earlier, Tommy isn't on his own for too long at all, maybe 10 minutes before he runs off with another woman. Meanwhile, Sadie waits for him like a sap in City Hall with Opal on standby as her matron of honor, who's half asleep from working all night. Left on her own in the city with a few coins in her pocket, Sadie McKee does what many other people did when they were broke during the Depression. She goes to the automat. Each time I sit down to write anything longer than a page, I spend a few minutes meditating on this scene when Joan Crawford enters the automat. I sent her my best intentions and overcome the inevitable sense of being impoverished or unequipped for the task at hand. The scene is only 42 seconds long. It has no dialogue, but I draw strength from it on the regular. The scene opens with Sadie at the coffee station in the automat. She slides the cup and saucer under an ornate spout. The lever turns one way for a cup of joe and the other to add milk. Saucer in hand, Sadie looks around for a place to rest. You would never know to look at Sadie McKee how desperate she was. No money, no job, no food. Sadie uses good style as buttress. Wearing a smart wool topper with faux fur cuffs and a matching hat pulled low over one eye, she's made bulletproof, protected, shielded from public scrutiny. Sadie's style protects her from judgment or any further calamity. She's just a fashionable dame having coffee. No one could guess how fragile. This is what I hope for on the page, that good style is all you see. If you're unfamiliar with the Automat, they were restaurants in New York and Philadelphia, which opened in 1902 and closed by the end of the 20th century. They were waiterless restaurants where diners exchanged cash for tokens to use in coin-operated slots. Each Automat offered an array of fresh dishes on display behind glass boxes. 
Diners made their selections, then carried food on a tray to a shared tables. Society matrons ate next to sex workers, bankers next to broom pushers. They were affordable, egalitarian, and oh-so-stylish. Marble, chrome, and Art Deco designs were unique in each venue. So Sadie takes her coffee and does what many people did when they were down on their luck. She scans the joint for leftovers. Sadie sees a man next to her prepare to leave with a piece of lemon meringue pie untouched. She smiles at that tart lemon pastry. But before he leaves, he turns and extinguishes his cigarette in the stiff egg white peaks. That, my dear listener, is the depression in one go. The haves who use food as an ashtray and the have-nots who must cinch their coat belts tighter. The ash can pie is a crime against humanity, so thoughtless and cruel. Even though Sadie McKee is driven near witless by hunger and poverty, things are already looking up for her once Tommy's out of the picture. She's in the gleaming, shiny optimism of the automat, where you might bump into anyone, and then, thank God, along comes Opal. One of the longer scenes is set in the nightclub where Sadie first meets Jack Brennan. It's also the scene that reunites her with Michael Alderson, the rich boy who grew up to be a lawyer. When they meet in the opening scene after not seeing each other for two years, Sadie made quite the exit when she shouted abuse at the shower of old money at the table. And then she told Michael he was lucky she didn't throw soup in his face. When she sits down at the nightclub table, she drops her razor-sharp hi-hat pronunciation and casts her eyes down as she says, Where's the man who sent for me? How many times might Joan have uttered a similar response in a nightclub after all those dance contests that she won, or backstage as a quarine, or in the studio? A sentimental song like Old Pal that's playing in the background is offset by a rendition of How Dry I Am. It mirrors or echoes the men in the scene who are sloppy and emotional. Michael calls Sadie a chiseler who wants to take Jack Brennan for his money. Edward Arnold sits there and he paws her more like a bear during the spring salmon run. He repeats, your name is Sadie and your mother is a cook, like it's one of those lines or a verse from those nightclub tunes. In the club, Joan doesn't say much. She turns the white-hot glare of her Klieg-Lite eyes onto Michael. She burns brighter and brighter. Joan Crawford has murder in her eyes. It's a wonder Franco Tone's dick didn't fall off by the end of the scene. Noble Sadie proves, though, that she's not a gold digger. It's odd because society tells women that the most important job they have is to make a good marriage, and then they still accuse women of just being in it for the money. Look at the courage Joan Crawford displays when she hears the doctors report that Jack Brennan is nearly in his grave. She vows to do the right thing and see that he's cured of the drink. Joan squares off against a lawyer who calls her cheap and a chiseler, a butler who calls her a tramp, and a house of servants who think she's a whore. But she perseveres. Sadie McKee learns the ethics 
in, in economics when she vows to save Jack Brennan's life because she doesn't want his money that way. She isn't what men say she is. When she marches into the kitchen and fires the staff, in five minutes she has them taking her pledge, a pledge to not give Mr. Brennan another drop. She'll let them keep their jobs if they help her do her job. Designs by Adrian created yet another brilliant collaboration between the most copied woman in the world and MGM's resident genius. Women in the audience anticipated glorious fashion on the big screen from Adrian, clothes that equipped them to meet the challenges of the day. They copied his fashions and felt bulletproof encased in his style. In fur, metallics, high necklines, tailored suits, and smart haberdashery, they walk the streets in a protective bubble of style. And each week in a new MGM picture, Adrian gave women a new array of style to study and decorate their daydreams. In the new book on Gilbert Adrian, published this month called Adrian, A Lifetime of Movie Glamour, Art, and High Fashion, by Leonard Stanley, Mark Vieira, with a foreword by Robin Adrian. They quote the designer on his professional association with Joan Crawford. He observes that Joan never attended a fitting alone. She always brought an entourage with her, so that he never felt like he really knew her. He said it was like doing a fashion fitting in Grand Central Station. He recalled that Joan always vexed the fitter by whirling her arms about and making all sorts of motion, which caused seams to rip out. She would complain that she couldn't move her arms. I have a similar horror of feeling trapped in tight clothes, so I can identify with Joan's concerns. Stanley and Vieira quote Adrian. Joan Crawford was an enormous fashion influence. She carried the banner of American fashion throughout the world. I did not design subtle fashions for her. Because her beauty had a poster-like quality, bold and clean cut, I painted her image with a contrasting brush. I enjoyed creating her clothes and was vitally interested in them. In true woman's picture ethos, we can tell the fortune of our heroine by her wardrobe. We know that Joan won't ever again wear the maid's uniform once she tells off the rich folks. It's not long before she's in a white silk gown installed as the society matron of a man worth millions. She has smart lounging pajamas, fur, plenty of it, a pleated lame cape, and perhaps the standout is Adrian's halter neck gown and black crepe with a gold harness. Joan loved the gown so much she wore it again in her next picture, chained with Clark Gable. It gives Joan a gladiatorial aura for her confrontation with Dolly Merrick. Platinum blonde, zaftig, with a sexy purr in her voice, Esther Ralston's Do Dolly Merrick gives Joan a run for her money. When they finally have it out backstage, in a showdown more anticipated than the, the one that comes later in the dressing rooms in Black's department store, when Crystal Allen met Mrs. Mary Haynes, Sadie tells Dolly that she could kill her and love it. 
Dolly's no pushover and snaps back that she does what she likes because she likes it. Then she gives Sadie the burn. At least I never sold myself for money. Joan shouts at Dolly to shut up, then pushes her arse down into a prop trunk. Sadie wins the battle because at the end, Dolly's legs are sticking up like a mannequin in a shop window. Just imagine, though, what they could have achieved had they been friends instead of enemies. Esther Ralston, as that luscious bombshell Dolly Merrick, was in a slump in Hollywood after years at the top with a salary of nearly 10000 a week, which unfortunately her deadbeat husband spent. Esther had to argue with him for a $10 weekly allowance because she never had any cash in her purse. She thought things were looking up when she was put under contract at Metro. But Louis B. Mayer decided to use his power to thwart her career, as he had done with so many other contract players who got on his shit list, such as John Gilbert. In Esther Ralston's memoir, Someday We'll Laugh, she recalls that before she had been cast in the picture, Mayer invited her to a preview. After the picture, he took her to the Colony Club for cocktails. The colony was packed with Hollywood royalty. She knew that she was getting special attention that evening from the stars precisely because she was pegged as Mayer's new favorite. Esther at one point realized that her 50-year-old boss had plans to get her alone when he was pestering her to leave. Esther stalled him and said she would tell the driver to bring the car around. On the way across to the club to get her driver, she stopped her friend Randolph Scott, who was out on a date with Claire Trevor, and asked for help. She asked them to go and sit in her car. When Mayer opened the door and saw Randy and Claire already in the car, his face became a mask of rage. Esther had her driver drop Mayer home first and then returned her friends to the Colony Club. Esther wrote about what occurred when she reported to the studio the next day. I was told to go at once to Mr. Mayer's office. He wanted to see me. Good morning, I said cheerfully as I entered his office. Mr. Mayer glared at me and shaking his finger at me furiously, he said, you think you're pretty smart, eh? Think you fooled me? Let me tell you, I can have any woman on this lot, Joan Crawford, and I stood up indignantly and interrupted his tirade. Perhaps you can. Any woman but Esther Ralston. Just who do you think you are, he sputtered. I thought, Mr. Mayor, I was hired as an actress, but obviously you had other plans for me. Mayor paced up and down the room, shouting, You sing your psalms, young lady, and see where it gets you. I'll blackball you in every studio in Hollywood, and what's more, you'll get nothing here. I turned and went and sat in my dressing room and wept with the injustice of it all. From then on, all the friends who had been so nice to me, who had made so much of me while I was in favor, passed me by without a word, as though I was some kind of leper. No more lovely publicity, no role with Clark Gable, and so on. I called Frank Corsati and asked if he had sold me to MGM, knowing what I'd be up against. And he said, sure, Esther, but I figured you'd be able to take care of yourself. My six-month option was coming up, and I knew Mayer would never keep me on. 
Then I heard that Clarence Brown was going to direct Joan Crawford and Sadie McKee, and that in the picture there was a wonderful part of a nightclub singer that was right down my alley. I went to Mr. Brown's office and told him about Mayer. When I finished my sad tale, Mr. Brown stood up and slammed his fist down on the desk. God damn it, he said, nobody tells me who to cast in my pictures. You are going to play the part of Dolly. Since Esther's option expired in the middle of production, the studio was obliged to pick up her contract for another six months. But as soon as Sadie McKee wrapped, Mayer loaned Esther to Universal, where she made a series of 13 lackluster B pictures. Her career was in the toilet. Her ex petitioned the court for alimony, and her business manager ran off with the small amount of money that she had left. Esther Ralston had a run of bad luck thanks to men who were one bad penny after another. She was gorgeous, had talent for wry humor, and that mixed her bombshell status. She could have taught a few lessons to Mae West, Jean Harlow, and Carol Lombard. Joan's life was good in 1934. Dancing Lady, her last picture, had been a huge success. She may have been the tacked-on romantic interest in Today We Live, but it was a prestige picture nonetheless. She was hot and heavy with Franchot, and still probably hooked up with Gable on occasion. Joan had been redecorating her house in Brentwood to remove the traces of when she called a dojo, an abbreviation for Doug and Joan, from her first marriage to the incredibly handsome Fairbanks Jr. He had the looks, but not the drive to match Joan. The media coverage of her relationship with Francho led to the inevitable questions about marriage. Metro cast Francho next to Joan to milk the publicity around their romance. In her memoir, Joan recalls a jarring moment she had on set one day. Joan recalled she was prepared to do a scene where she had to leaf through a magazine, probably one of those issues of Variety, when she skims for news on Tommy. When Clarence Brown said, action, Joan read the headline in front of her on the magazine. It said, Doug and I are married the modern way, says Joan Crawford. She was shocked to see a story she gave a reporter two years ago staring up at her when she was already divorced and over Doug Jr. Joan asked Clarence Brown if she could have a moment to fix her makeup. She used the break to pull herself together. She vowed that she would stop giving quotes about her personal life. That same day on set, reporters were there. One from Photoplay asked her if she planned to marry Francho. Joan replied that she didn't believe in marriage. The quote she gave was, It isn't fair for a woman who wants a career as much as I do to marry. She followed it up by stating that she did not believe she'd ever marry again. While she delivered her disbelief in the state of modern marriage for women in Hollywood, Francho stood there. His response when asked was that he would keep asking Joan to marry him until she said yes. He went further and declared that the reason Joan had no faith in marriage was because she lacked confidence in herself. He said this of a woman who crawled out from the laundry, from the chorus line, of a woman who had a secret beach house reserved for a private getaway from Doug Jr. She wouldn't tell Doug Jr. of the address or where it was. And when she made up her mind to divorce him, 
Joan changed the locks and her phone number just in case he didn't get the hint. She watched and learned from everyone in MGM, lobbied for scripts, stole them, and sometimes did worse to get them. And this is the woman Francho thinks lacks confidence? I'll leave you with three brief points. In her excellent book on the director Clarence Brown, Hollywood's Forgotten Master, Gwenda Young points out that although he was teetotal, Brown had a gift for offering sensitive and empathetic character portraits of alcoholics. Gwenda Young observes that the studies of dissolution in Brown's films include The Goose Woman from 1925, A Free Soul in 1931, and then Sadie McKee and also A Wilderness from 1935. They contain uh, depictions more uh, complex than simple stereotypes or moralizing. In this picture, Edward Arnold, his performance is so good, he moves from buffoon to animal. The sight of him when he punches Sadie in the face with a right cross and then stands there weaving and wavering at the top of the stairs is horrifying. Jack Brennan has become a monster with his pajama top open, his bare chest all sweaty, coated in dipso flop sweat, greasy, snarling, unhinged. I'd also like to mention Zelda Sears, who plays Mrs. Craney, the landlady who collects rent but doesn't ask too many questions. Zelda was a screenwriter as well as a stage and screen actor. She contributed to the script for Joan Crawford's smash hit, Dancing Lady. Zelda Sears contributed to several outstanding Depression-era woman's pictures, including The Divorcee, which won Norma Shearer an Oscar. She was one of the writers for Garbo Susan Lennox, also for Marie Dressler in Emma and Tugboat Annie. In Storyline, Recollections of a Hollywood Screenwriter, Lenore Coffey wrote about how much she enjoyed talking with Clarence Brown. She said Irving Thalberg had stuck her in an office that was little more than a shack on the MGM lot. Incommodious, cramped, and sweltering as it was, Clarence Brown would call around to chat without exhibiting any discomfort or judgment. He listened, and he took an interest in Lenore. One day, she asked him what his idea of stardom was. He answered by saying it's when people said, let's leave the dishes in the sink and go see Joan Crawford. Thanks so much for listening. Join me next time for episode 61 when I talk about Linda Darnell and the Walls of Jericho from 1948. Thanks so much.